Innovations in Sustainable Finance. A University of St. Gallen podcast by Julian Kölbel. Harald Valkate here on the podcast. Harald, it's great to have you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. It's wonderful to see you and hear you again. <laughs> yeah. So, Harald, we'll talk about this theme you brought up in uh, articles recently, which is blended finance is like music. I can't wait to get into it. Before we do, though, just uh, let's talk a little bit about you. You did an MBA at Chicago Booth, right? Yeah, that's correct. So, so that is the school that's famous for many things, of course, but it's also famous for Milton Friedman and his statement, well, the responsibility of business is to increase its profit. Yeah. So pretty, pretty unapologetic on that front. Now, you are, I think it's fair to describe you as an expert in sustainable finance. How did that happen? <laughs> um, no, it's, it's actually, it's a really good question because uh, when I first started getting into ESG or sustainable finance, uh, it was about 2009 when I was working at uh, Agon Asset Management. And I had an interest in sustainability and all those things. And, and so I thought that was interesting development that people started talking about responsible investment and ESG and so forth. But in part, this was because I thought, hey, that's, that's a way to use money, finance to solve problems. But in part, it was also because I thought this was a little bit of a riddle because ESG people, responsible investment people were saying a lot of things that kind of challenged the things that I learned in business school. And not only from reading Milton Friedman, but from reading many other, you know, well-known finance academics, Nobel Prize winning academics and so forth. And um, I think actually that has really helped me this maybe somewhat skeptical attitude. And to this, uh, something I also learned at Chicago Booth is sort of this discipline of uh, rigorously thinking about everything, you know, never just accepting any assumption, you know, challenge everything, that sort of approach. And that's, I think, in combination with this desire to, you know, to uh, make a contribution, have impact, I think has helped get me uh, to where I am today uh, with, you know, sort of, I, I would say, yeah, uh, pretty significant expertise on a lot of these different aspects of ESG and sustainable finance. So uh, while I don't agree with everything that Milton Friedman said, I, I agree with a lot. And I think Friedman also really helped me get to where I am today. Right. So uh, it, it seems you're in the business then of challenging the assumptions in, uh, in ESG and sustainable finance. Uh, that that um, is definitely a theme I can take away. Yes. Now, uh, in addition to that, so you know, in saying blended finance is like music, we'll, we'll get to the blended finance part, but, but it I, I hear you are also actually a musician, so you wouldn't make this analogy lightly, I should say. What do you play? Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I am a musician. I play the piano, uh, mostly jazz piano, which is, um, so I play in different size groups. And so jazz, as you uh, may know, involves a lot of improvisation and um, that, you know, we, we shouldn't sort of um, overemphasize the analogy between music and the sustainable finance. But uh, one thing that has also helped me in my career is the ability to improvise. <laughs> um, and uh, that, that's also sometimes been very central to my work. 
No, I think we, we, I mean, we will stretch the analogy to as far as we can go. I think that's going to be fun. So again, thank you, Harold. It, it's really great to have you. Um, now, blended finance, this is one of the frontiers in sustainable finance, clearly. Perhaps for starters, you could give us a bit of an intro. At what is blended finance? Before I do that, I mean, maybe just uh, you say something very interesting and sort of like it's the next frontier or the news thing or cutting edge in sustainable finance. I think it's actually... It's almost like the reverse. It's okay. um, and uh, you know to explain this, I've hit upon a concept that uh, I didn't come up with myself, but I've read about recently, and I should look up who said it so I can sort of give credit where credit's due. But basically, the concept is comparing sustainable finance with financing sustainability. This is, I mean, it may sound like it's not very important, but I think it's very important because. Sustainable finance is sort of what you and I are really interested in. Is like this whole set of tools that you can use, you know, to take ESG considerations into account, to, to you know, do impact investing, what have you. And the whole idea is that it's like this: it's a new set of tools that you can help to solve societal problems. And you know, also going back to what you said earlier, yeah, I like to uh, challenge assumptions. You know, I think if you challenge a lot of the assumptions underlying sustainable finance, you realize that actually many of these tools don't really work or don't really work very well. And if the goal is to finance sustainability, you know, to find projects or solutions to societal challenges and to find the money to actually make these programs or projects happen, I think we're now realizing that often we just kind of need to go back to the stuff that we knew all along, uh, the stuff that we learned in business school uh, from Milton Friedman, and use the finance tools that we have used for decades, if not centuries, to, to actually fund these problems. And so that's why I like to talk about this concept from you know, going from sustainable finance to financing sustainability, and therefore, just to you know, answer your question in a very roundabout way, I don't really think blended finance is sort of the new frontier. It's, it's one of the examples of kind of going back to stuff we already knew. And so now to answer your question, what is blended finance? I mean, just in a very uh, simplistic way, it is the blending, literally you know, the bringing together of different sources of capital, where one source of capital typically comes from uh, governments or philanthropy. And is concessional, is, is willing to accept a higher risk or a, a lower return than other investors. And in doing so, basically, you're attracting private sector investors. You're, you're making projects that, that would normally be considered uninvestable, investable. And, and so why is this important? Well, because the deep pockets in the world of finance are typically with the pension funds, the insurance companies, the sovereign wealth funds, those are all organizations who have very strict investment criteria because they need to invest to pay out pensions, to pay out clients and so forth. And uh, if we wanna use their deep pockets of capital to fund uh, solutions to societal problems, we basically need to structure the investments in such a way that they say, hey, this is a good investment. We can make this investment and then we can scale up everything that needs to be done. These pension funds, sovereign wealth funds you mentioned, they have a mandate, they have a fiduciary duty to fulfill. And, and that is your point that 
they will naturally not invest in projects that, as you said, are you know uninvestable because right from the start you you might accept a, a lower return than you might otherwise get, and these institutions typically just cannot, simply for legal reasons, uh, ever entertain any such idea. So blended finance is the idea of mixing their money in a capital structure with with funds from other institutions who who could do that. And uh, basically, out of that, create something that drives change. Yeah, that's exactly it. So you said one thing in your introduction, and you you phrased it as sort of, you know, the tools in sustainable finance do not really work. So when you say really work, what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, so uh, that, that's a very good question. And so um, to answer that question, we have to be very clear also about what we are actually trying to achieve. And there's some, some very smart academics uh, who did a lot of thinking about this, uh, mostly academics associated with the, uh, the Center for Sustainable Finance and Private Wealth. Uh, you may know some of them, uh, Julian. <laughs> uh, who's, who started writing about this about the same time that I started thinking about this. And so you have to distinguish basically, again, you know, somewhat simplistically between three different objectives that investors have in uh, using ESG tools or sustainable finance tools. Basically, it's values alignment, it's financial, so that means a higher return or lower risk, or it's impact saving the world or contributing to a better world or solving problems. So again, one is values alignment, two is financial, three is impact. And so to answer the question, do ESG tools work? You first have to be clear on what you actually were using it for. And so you know, I, I have a slide that goes into a lot of detail where I look at all the different ESG tools and I uh, compare them to all of the three objectives. And basically what you conclude from that slide is almost everything that you can do with sustainable finance is uh, works if the point is values alignment. You have certain values and you're doing ESG stuff and kind of makes you feel good. And so in that sense, that's all great. Everything is working. So that would be just to make an example, if I don't like a certain industry, whatever it may be, tobacco, and then I just do not invest, I exclude it. That, that would be values alignment. Exactly. So that, yeah, often people use divestment or exclusions as a, as a way to kind of give expression to their desire to align values with uh, investments. But so it could also be ESG integration, could also be for values alignment. You know, you take into account environmental and social factors when you make investment decisions. You know, that's also if that's in line with your values to pay attention to these factors, that's great. Engagement on ESG issues can also work for values alignment. You're talking to company management about you know, how they deal with their employees or about environmental issues. All great for values alignment. So, but the more important questions, I think, for you and me is, uh, and for you know, practitioners out there, is the question, does it in fact also help with financial objectives? Does it generate higher returns or does it help manage risks? Or, and that's, I think, the most important question of all, does it also have impact and does it, in fact, result in real-world outcomes? Are we allowing things to happen that, that otherwise wouldn't happen? And so on those two counts, unfortunately, for, for many of the sustainable finance tools, we know now, based on the academic research, you know, much of which you've also contributed to, that unfortunately, many of the tools 
do not generate higher returns. And many of the tools do not lead to real world outcomes. And so that means that we have to be very careful if we have this objective to have impact, you know, to uh, reallocate money so that it contributes to the sustainable development goals, for example. We have to make sure that we pick the tools that will actually help us do that. I mean, I, I agree with that, of course, that there are these three objectives and, and um, it's kind of a trick question, right? Does it work? And you, you, you answered very well. It depends on what you <laughs> want to use it for. <laughs> and, and of course, this is a, a huge question, this, this question around impact. After all, why is it called sustainable finance? I mean, one reasonable assumption would be, well, because it somehow helps us to achieve more sustainability. So, so it is front and center, I, I believe. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. So you, you seem to have concluded that, that blended finance is you know has a has good potential to uh, to work in in that sense as it were you've already indicated a little bit what it's about it's about mixing funds from from different actors and and i mean let's let's introduce your your theme of of blended finance uh, is like music who are the the players that you see playing in in this uh, i don't know if you have more a symphony or a jazz band in mind um, <laughs> yeah i mean it, it can work for any any kind of music ensemble as long as it's more than one person right. playing um that's kind of key yeah so I'll, I'll i'll tell you where this came from because i've been um thinking and, and talking about impact investment and, and blended finance with two other guys uh robert von zwieten and simon gupta and mm -hmm. we uh, shared sort of the same uh, i guess you know sort of analysis of, of the problem but also ideas about how we can uh, solve the problem uh, mainly through through blended finance, and we started talking about this, and and also kind of the different actors, so you know governments, asset owners like pension funds or insurance companies, asset managers, investment banks, development banks, foundations, you know entrepreneurs. I mean, there's this whole ecosystem really that that needs to be involved. And in in our conversations, at some point, I guess it, it was probably me uh, who started saying it's kind of like a symphony orchestra. Um, mm -hmm. you, you know, you need all these different people with a different skill sets. I mean, playing the violin and playing percussion or playing you know, the trumpets, these are really different things. You need different people. You need someone who plays the trumpet really well and you need someone who plays the violin really well. So that's, that was kind of the starting point. And then we, we said, hey, you know, we, we could write some articles about this because also these, all these different actors kind of have different roles or different things they should be doing or not doing in order for us to generate more blended finance. So that's where the idea came from. And then in each of these six articles that we ended up writing, we zoom in on one of the actors. So, you know, we have a, uh, an article about the role of governments. We have an article about the role of asset owners and an article about the role of ESG professionals. And, but each article is based on this idea is like, okay, you're trying to put together a symphony, you're putting on a concert, what do you need to think about to bring all of these people together? And maybe just to add an additional thought, because I mean, the analogy works in the sense that, you know, it's, it's about music, making music and each has like their own specific contribution that only they can make. But the organizational aspect is also really important because what we also emphasize in the articles is that if you want to put on a concert, the musicians aren't just going to magically show up, <laughs> you know, at the, right. on the same day, at the same time, the same place. No, I mean, you have to have someone who says, hey, 
we're going to organize a concert and they need to pick the venue and they need to pick a date and they need to actually inform people so that people buy a ticket and that you can actually fund the whole arrangement. And then you need to make sure that, you know, there's a conductor. You need to make sure that someone actually decides what you're going to play, that everyone has the same sheet music in front of them, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so it's more than about uh, just, you know, playing the music. And this is also a, a very good analogy with what needs to happen in blended finance because uh, that's also one of the main things that is holding up, us up is there isn't really one single party that is doing the convening, that is doing like, that's like the producer of the blended finance uh, symphony orchestra. And that's what we also need. I find that a very interesting point because as I hear you speak, you know, the situation that different stakeholders come together to create something is uh, is very common, actually, right? There are tons of organizations, companies uh, that, that do exactly that. Of course, there are orchestras and bands who, who, who meet every Wednesday to, to practice. So, so that in itself is very common. But what you said last, that there needs to be someone who takes the initiative to, to, to start the whole thing, right? In, you know, in, in, in ca classic corporate governance, that would be usually you know, that role is attributed to the to the shareholders. They are the ones, uh, you know, the, the residual claimant, they put their capital at risk and they sort of contract with everybody else to get the whole thing rolling. They, they install a manager, pay them as well. So that function, of course, is is somehow not there in this blended finance situation because, right, the, the, the person who organizes everything is not at the end or somehow cannot be the one who takes away most of the profit if things go as well. Uh, that, anyways, maybe that could be the case, but it doesn't seem to happen at the moment. Yeah. Another, uh, maybe you have thoughts on that, but an another thing is, of course, the somehow the secret sauce to to this uh, musical uh, dish is is the the parties that say, well, we want to invest in order to have impact, right? So maybe you can yeah. lose a word or two about those. It, it seems that who, who are these and, you know, and why does it make sense for them to go into blended finance? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. And um, we should also, I mean, you, you made another very important point earlier about sort of the shareholders and taking the initiative and so forth. I think that points to a very uh, important problem that we have in blended finance. But maybe first to answer this question, yeah, so typically these organizations who are trying to have impact are development banks, could be sort of entrepreneurs or kind of initiators. You know, entrepreneurs already sounds like, you know, you're, you're starting a business and you're looking for venture capital funding and so forth. You know, often these kinds of projects aren't really designed with a view to, uh, you know, attracting capital in, in the first instance, at least. It's not the most important priority. Anyway, but so you can call them entrepreneurs, people who say, hey, I see an issue here. There, you know, I see there's a lack of ed education in this country, or we need to address, I don't know, maternal health or, or poverty or climate change, what have you, and I, I'm going to start a project. But it could also be, uh, you know, sort of nonprofits, NGOs, uh, governments, yeah, it's a it's a broad range of, of actors, and so the reason that it's uh, that they should think about blended finance as uh, as a tool that could help them is that it's often very difficult uh, first to get funding for these projects, but even if they do, 
it's very difficult to get the funding that allows them to really scale this up. And that's where blended finance can come in handy because, again, you know, it gives you a tool to uh, get access to the deep pockets in finance. But that, that again, then comes with this whole range of, of barriers and, and, and problems that you need to uh, overcome to actually get there. <laughs> So I think it's uh, it's maybe a good time for for an example to to make the whole thing uh, a bit more more practical. Yeah. Can you give us a, an example of a blended finance deal that illustrates some of what we've been saying? Sure. Um, yeah. No. And I, um, I I thought about this a little bit. I'm, I'm working on a couple of projects now, but that's all kind of happening as we speak. Uh, okay. but, but one project I can probably talk about quite safely because it's it's a little bit um, sort of in the in the past and it's all in the public domain. When I worked at Aegon, I was involved in um, setting up of a fund that that's called uh, Climate Investor One, and and I certainly don't want to sort of over claim my contribution. Uh, but one of the things that I did, I think, to help was to introduce the people who were setting this up to my colleagues. At Aegon, the people or Aegon Asset Management, the people who are really responsible for allocation of capital. Anyway, so that that gave me an opportunity to, at the early stage of this process, to kind of see what they were up to and how they were going about it. And and I've I've remained in touch with with people who who did this. And so the the company uh, who set up this fund is called Climate Fund Managers, and it's it's a joint venture of FMO, the Dutch. Development Bank and a South African infrastructure investment company. Anyway, so that's all not so important, but if you want to look it up, you can find this all online. But so the the interesting thing about this example is that they wanted to start renewable energy infrastructure projects in the emerging markets in the developing world. And uh, this this is good to dwell on this a little bit because. It's a very interesting point because many people will, might say it's like, oh, well, you know, renewable infrastructure is like wind farms, solar panels, and that sort of thing. Oh, we're, we're doing all of this, right? In Germany and Denmark and the Netherlands and pension funds are lining up to invest in these things. But it's uh, not as easy to do these things in the in emerging markets like, you know, sub-Saharan Africa or, or parts of Asia, et cetera. And so when it comes to those kinds of projects, when they go to pension funds, a pension fund will say, ah, you want to do a wind farm in Mali? Well, we don't really know anything about Mali. We think there's political risk. We think there's currency risk. There's really sort of no legal structure there. What if anything goes wrong with this project? Like, do we go to the courts or how does all of that work? And so typically when companies or individuals start these kind of projects and try to get funding from pension funds, they simply get a no. And so what was interesting about this project is that they set this up from the beginning using blended finance tools in a way that they could already demonstrate that they're meeting all of the requirements that pension funds typically have or insurance companies, which was in my case for Agon also ended up investing in this uh, in this fund so did they what what did they offer the you know a potential pension fund here did they somehow find a way to de-risk the project or was there a counterparty they they could rely on how how did they make it palatable to the pension fund yeah so i mean they used a couple of tools um 
in our case, the most sort of specific example was they obtained a, a guarantee uh, from a company called Atradius, which is the, the Dutch export credit agency. Uh, it's sort of like an insurance company that, yeah. that is sort of a quasi-governmental agency. And the interesting thing is that when you get this guarantee, that makes the project, in, you know, in terms of risk, makes it equal to investing in a government-issued bond. So very low risk, in fact. Very, very, the lowest risk. You know, the government, Dutch government bonds have a triple A rating. And if you have a project and you get a guarantee from Atradius, it also has a triple A rating. So basically, for a pension fund, everything else, and I'm simplifying a little bit here, obviously, but everything else, you know, the fact that you're doing uh, renewable energy, the fact that you're investing in a place like Mali, the, you know, the fact that you're investing with people you've, you've kind of never heard of. It's a company that is just starting out, has no track record. All becomes more or less irrelevant because the Pension Fund Investment Committee will simply say, we can allocate in sort of, you know, triple A to triple A investments. This has a triple A rating. So that's kind of all we need to know. And obviously, again, simplifying the process was a little bit longer than that, and, and more things come into play. But that is the key thing that, at the end of the day, the pension fund will look at. But in, in this case, anyways, the musicians started to play. Um, uh, and, uh, and I don't know if you have followed the project. Was it in Mali, indeed, the, 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 where, where infrastructure was built? So... I'm just curious. So, if I were to travel to Mali, would I see some <laughs> some windmills turning happily? Uh, that's that's a good question. So, Mali is just an example. It might very okay. well be. Yes, they have uh, done multiple projects, mostly in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. Again, I don't know if Mali is amongst them. Might very well be, but in any case, uh, in countries uh, like that, yes, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I think that's a a great example, and and. Uh, I specifically liked, as you pointed out, that there is a big difference between uh, investing in German wind farms, where anyways, also you have the German government, or you used to have at least uh, as a counterparty through the feed-in tariff, versus, you know, one of the first wind parks in, in an African country, for example, for two reasons exactly. First of all, is that there's just a lot less capital flowing to these countries for all the reasons that you stated. And second, that if we think about how the world's energy system, you know, will transition to a low carbon energy system, it is extremely important that developing nations build up their energy system in a renewable way, rather than, uh, you know, for the moment still rely on, on brown coal and, and so forth. So, so this is extremely important in terms of, you know, driving that change that, that you've been talking about. Yes, absolutely. One thing that I find curious about this, you know, let's suppose, um, infrastructure was built that otherwise wouldn't have been built for this uh, blended finance project. So who had impact here? Is, yeah. it, is it the pension fund, given it's just a, you know, basically a regular government bond that they're investing in? Or is it is it the expert credit agency? Is it the, I don't know, the people in the ground in Mali? Who who did it? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think, I think it's um, everyone and no one all at the same time. I think also, I mean, it kind of points to this question of uh, intentionality. 
and uh, attributability. <laughs> Can you attribute these kinds of impacts to any any particular person or, or investor? Yeah, I mean, these are interesting things to think about, um, mostly because for me, the question is, okay, if this works, how do we replicate it? And so how do we identify the parties that actually made this happen? And so I, I think there to answer that question, it was really the people who, who set up climate fund managers. And I, I guess the origin of that was with, was with FMO, but obviously they couldn't have done it if, they, if all of these other parties who were involved in this project didn't contribute in some way. But I think the, uh, what you're also pointing to maybe is this question, which is often how sort of impact investments and ESG people approach to question is, you know, who's responsible for this in the sense like, you know, who can score impact points with this? Yeah. And, and I think that's while I kind of understand where it's coming from, I think it's a little bit unhelpful because that, that really has to do more also with this intentionality question. I think in the world of impact investment, there's there's much uh, there's way too much emphasis on on this aspect, and and it, I think it has to do with sort of this sense of identity that that people also derive from this. It's like, oh, hey, if I can score like ten impact points out of this project, then that makes me like a, you know a more impactful, a better person than someone else who has no impact points or maybe only five impact points. But at the end of the day, it's kind of this you know scoring mentality that uh, while I understand why sometimes you know, that's simply how humans behave, doesn't really help us direct more capital to where it's needed most. And, and also then the question really becomes not so much like, you know, do we go to pension funds and bang them over the head and say, you have to have intentionality, you have to care about impact, you have to score impact points. At the end of the day, most pension funds don't care as much about that. They simply care about making good investments. And so I think that's that's kind of what I think we should do and, and also what we're now doing with uh, this company that I started, uh, Route 17. We basically want to go to pension funds and say, hey, here's a good investment. <laughs> okay. And um, and then if they say, look, and we also like to score impact points and say, okay, that's also fine. That's that's great. You can do that. This is kind of genuine impacts. But the most important thing is that you put money in these things so that we can actually address these uh, societal problems. Yeah, it seems to me that that is the decisive point, right? That there actually has a problem been solved. And then uh, it's secondary almost how do you divvy that up and it's probably often it's simply not possible to divvy it up uh, as you mentioned this sort of it was everyone and no one and and you have many such situations where just and i think that is the whole point of your analogy that these players complement each other i rarely hear somebody after a concert asking so you know what do you think who you know who had the biggest impact on your enjoyment was it the violin or rather the horns yeah. no i mean Obviously, it's the point that they played together on time on the right notes and, and, you know, that they felt the music. And it's probably not that different in that case, right? The, the, the point is the outcome. You know, I'd rather err on the side that everybody claims a little bit as long as the, the fundamental, you know, something has happened is, is a given. That's also why I asked whether the windmills are actually turning. I yeah, think yeah. that is always an important question to ask in these contexts. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that that you 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 might become you know might, you have an ambition to take on this role to sort of get the band back together and uh, you know find find people to play. Uh, I I like it. There are some you know perhaps some some critical voices also on 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 blended finance and I. <laughs> 
it, it it may not be easy sometimes. I remember vividly we once hosted a party where exactly the point was to sort of you know connect socially some uh, potential philanthropic funders with uh, people more from the development banking world. And uh, it was vexing because the, the whole cocktail party was there for these people to mingle, but they somehow didn't. It was like oil and water. We had one group on the one side, the other group on the other side. They talked among themselves, but they didn't really mix. It was hard. Have you encountered that as well? Is there, is there somehow, are these different worlds or was it just an accident in our case? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, unfortunately, I, I, yeah, I recognize this. Um, and, and here also, I mean, the, the, the musical analogy also works because violinists are also very different from, you know, trumpet players or a jazz musician is very different from a classical player, right? So from the outside, you might not think this, but often people you know, speak a very different language, have very different interests, have different objectives or ambitions and so forth. And so while on paper, it might, might make sense you know, to bring them together in practice, this might actually be really difficult. And um, so this is exactly what's happening with, with blended finance. Uh, so I've I've worked a little bit in my career with with all of these different actors. I've you know I've I've had exposure to development banks. I've worked with government representatives. I've worked with you know Wall Street types, with with lawyers, with you know private equity, and so forth. And these are all different worlds, right? So this is also I, I guess some something that's just typical for us humans. We're sort of tribal, right? So we identify with a certain, mm-hmm. certain group, and we kind of like being a private private equity guy or girl and hanging out with other private equity people. But that means that we rarely, if ever, you know, uh, sort of hang out with people who are doing, you know, like uh, wind farms in Mali, for example. And so bringing those people together and then actually allowing them to work together uh, is really difficult. And that's one of the things that, that I'd also like to contribute to. I, I do think it can be done if, if you uh, create the right convening and collaboration platforms. Yeah, so so definitely a, a cultural element there. I think I think that that is exactly what we saw as well. Although there are sometimes also fairly rational arguments, or at least sort of depending on the political economy in which people are moving. So, for instance, from people in the development banking world, I think they are very cautious to. I mean, if this is super promising for them. They could leverage their balance sheet if they have, you know, I don't know. 20 billion to spend in order to uh, upgrade energy infrastructure yeah. if they would you know just say okay we 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 take the first loss but 90% of the balance sheet of these projects is could actually be filled up with uh with money from uh, from pension funds and sovereign wealth funds they, they they would get a lot more infrastructure built that's at least sort of in theory but i think in practice they're very cautious to appear in such a way that their taxpayer money ultimately Although it does what it's supposed to do, which is building infrastructure, also contributes to private profits uh, of, of people who, you know, already own a lot of money. Uh, so I think that's a very sensitive issue for them. And, and that seems sometimes to be the reason why they shy away from these deals. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, that's, a, that's an incredibly important point. You know, even though I can sympathize a little bit with that sort of point of view, I mean, you don't want to, you know, subsidize a bunch of, you know, fat cats, Wall Street's uh, investors or bankers. At the same time, it's a little bit irrational because really what you have to recognize is that 
there are different actors in society who have different sort of uh, pots of money and uh, who have different sort of incentives and and, uh, criteria. And so what you're really doing with blended finance is just kind of making an optimal mix, playing to those specific criteria and incentives. And so I think the way that I would look at these things is like, yes, you, you may be sort of uh, you know, subsidizing and sort of air, air quotation marks, uh, Wall Street or a pension fund or, or a bank. But if that means that, in, you know, instead of putting like, uh, you know, 10 million into a project, you can put 100 million to a project. That seems to me like a useful kind of leveraging uh, of these kinds of actors. I think where we have to be very careful, and this is where critics do have a point, is that you have to design these tools in a way that they're kind of temporary. And, you know, it can be temporary, like a year or 10 years or even 20 years. But we have to recognize that there is sort of this subsidizing going on and that you should only do that, use subsidies or public money, uh, as long as that's really needed. And I think if you look, for example, at renewable energy in Europe, this was heavily subsidized for many years. Just look at the, you know, the German Energielende, for, mm-hmm. for example. Um, but at some point, you know, politicians need to come to this conclusion. It's like, okay, we did this for many years. It's worked. Look, you know, we have wind farms everywhere. Pension funds are lining up to invest in these things. That probably means that we can now pull out the subsidies or kind of phase them out. And we can redirect this money and, and use it to subsidize other areas that now need this further development and encouragement. But that's a very tricky thing to do because it's not like you have a piece of software that tells you exactly is like, oh, you know, it is now 31st of January, 2023. This means that, you know, these markets or these technologies are now investable. You can pull out your money and then the clock starts ticking. It doesn't work like that. It's kind of you have to look at all these different signals. You have to talk to all the actors in the markets. And it's kind of a lot of judgment that comes into this. Uh, but it, you know, it's a fair point, something you have to be aware of, but certainly not a reason not to do it. Yeah, well, something that comes to mind is um, uh, pension funds, in my experience, they, they very commonly have a policy of not being the first one to do anything. Mm. They always want uh, that somebody has done it before them, uh, if they're invested in a fund. Right? Every first time fundraising is is, is a hard sell. So So that's one indication. And certainly, I think, the first wind farm in Kenya is is probably a hard sell to investors. The the second one, probably a lot easier already. So so it seems that this, you know, the the, the impact money should should go towards pioneering projects. Uh, you know, the first of its kind in terms of technology, country, and 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 whatnot. Is that a common thing you observe or? agree with yeah no absolutely and, and so i mean yes there is a lot of bureaucracy in these organizations and, and now i should also point out that the bureaucracy is often there for good reason right so pension funds or, or asset owners just generally often put in place all of these processes and rules and committees and you know all the things that need to go into decision making to make sure that they allocate the money that is not theirs. You know, it's like the pensioners' money. Make sure that they allocate this in a responsible way and can pay out pensions. You know, so sometimes yes, maybe these organizations go overboard a little bit, like any organization. But so again, I, I'm, I'm not sort of against uh, bureaucracy in principle. It's just a question of navigating it. But so. 
to your point, yes, I think you know often pension fund can make the biggest difference or can have the largest impact. Maybe not even by actually putting money into a project, but by giving access to some of the expertise or insights or just time. Uh, and this is something I've I've seen in practice where if if a project is looking for funding, if they can spend time with people who can explain how the pension fund allocates capital, like what what is all the decision making? What is all the stuff you have to think about before approaching them? That can go a very long way for that project in, in, in terms of really understanding what they have to do to get access to that, that kind of money. And then especially if it's sort of like a first-time project or or in frontier markets, then the demonstration effect of this can be very powerful, as, as you suggest. Yes, exactly. The demonstration effect. I think that was what I was uh, looking for in one word. Thank yeah. you, Harald. I think, uh, unfortunately, we'll, we'll uh, sort of have to wrap it up. But before we stop or before we finish, I'd like to ask you, you're now deeply into this topic. What do you think is next? Uh, in this world of blended finance, if if we look ahead for for one or two years, and and what would you wish to happen, perhaps? Yeah, um, it's a really good question. I think uh, a lot of different things are happening and, and and need to happen. I think you know you can sort of boil it down to the essence by saying that the the conversation on sustainable finance is continuing. What we started out discussing. And increasingly, what I'm also the pension funds, insurance companies, and so forth that I'm working with are also really coming to this view that, first of all, at the end of the day, of the three objectives, you know, values, alignment, financial, and impact, impact is probably the most important one. That's kind of also what you know the man or the woman in the street thinks about when you say ESG or sustainable fund. Typically, people think like, oh, that's a fund. If I invest in this, then I help make the world a better place. And so I think that's people are starting to realize that, you know, at the end of the day, if it's not about that, then what are we really doing? So that's one. And then two, obviously, as we discussed, realizing that a lot of these sustainable finance tools aren't really working as as well as we hoped. And so that's one thing that's happening. The other thing that's happening then is that increasingly institutional investors uh, like you know the pension funds then are starting to say, okay, well, if the point is to have impact, and if all this UC stuff isn't really doing that, we need to think about you know, not sustainable finance, but financing sustainability. And then very quickly, you realize that all of those projects, all of those solutions you want to put in place are not investable yet uh, you know, as they are today. So they're starting to come to the conclusion, or they need to come to the conclusion that you know, blended finance is then your friend, or it's kind of the tool you need to use if you still want to make those commitments, have impact, and actually put the money into impact, then that's inevitably where, where you end up. So that's what needs to happen, those two things, but I think it's already happening. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually very sort of encouraged and optimistic about uh, the future of sustainable finance. Very well. Thank you so much, Harold. I'm also very optimistic about what you're going to achieve and do in the space and wish you all the best in your musical, professional and, and other endeavors. Thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Great conversation. And thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care. All Thank right. you. We have a small bonus for today's episode. As you have heard, Harold is also a musician, a jazz pianist, 
and I've asked him if we could play some of his music on the show. And he generously agreed. So if you just stay in and listen, you will hear a piece from his album Music at Night by the band called The New York Second. And the track is called Him, a Bull, Ha, a Bird. I wish you lots of fun with it. <laughs> 